I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening to Port City Politics. Just a quick note, today's show was recorded with reporter Michael Pratt while he was on the road in Charlotte, and so the sound quality is not ideal. We're still working on getting our footing here on this new arrangement across the state, but we promise we will get there, so just bear with us for today's episode. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Shockman. And I'm Michael Pratz. And we're going to talk about all things housing. Uh, we're talking about some short-term rental updates, the uh, grandma's house, the ADUs. Um, so let's get into it, Pratz. What's first up? All right. So let's start with short-term rentals, always a favorite subject of Wilmington and really across the state um, of North Carolina. And, of course, a favorite subject for you and I. Um, we have covered short-term rentals ad nauseum since I think we've both been in news uh, in North Carolina, that's for sure. Um, so as those of you who have been playing along at home probably know, Wilmington tried and failed in a very, uh, very large way uh, very, to regulate short-term. Yeah, a very public, a very expensive way. Yeah, yeah, it made it all the way to the uh, North Carolina Court of Appeals uh essentially what uh what wilmington did uh and we will not get into all of this because it would take us the three years to cover it that we already did but uh they put some restrictions in place that basically said you can't have short-term rentals if someone else in your area within 400 feet has one uh they started a lottery system to uh to figure out who was going to be able to rent their homes for short-term rentals uh, and this was just in certain districts, to be clear. Um, but still, it, it really it cut back the number of people who could rent their homes by, you know, at least three quarters. Um, so there were these zoning regulations and the city said this is legal. Well, you and I, uh, we we questioned this from day one since before it was even passed. And this is when we were both at Port City Daily. Um, we found a law on the books that basically says cities may not do any of the following and what wilmington did was all of the following basically um so everything they said they couldn't do wilmington did uh seemed like a pretty clear-cut argument uh the courts kind of decided it was but wilmington was not willing to back down from this uh you know from their fight saying that they had the authority to do this through regulations um that went to the north carolina court of appeals and that's that's pretty much where it ended and a lot of people said that they were waiting on lawmakers in north carolina to figure it out um to to go ahead and make some rules and 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 do something with this because there was some ambiguity even though it didn't seem like it i mean what were your thoughts on what we what law was and what we saw. Yeah, I mean, the city of Wilmington's argument was that the, the laws on the books were in a part of the state code dealing with uh, planning. Um, and this, the city considered to be code enforcement. And I, I think, for me, what, what struck me was that the city is often very, very cautious when it comes to ordinances that might run afoul of the state, even hypothetically. Um, if you look back a couple of years, the city was uh, working on a non-discrimination policy and uh, 
at the time city attorney John Joy was, you know, uh, very, very conservative, not in the political sense, but in the legal sense of the way they were drafting this um, to avoid, you know, future litigation. And I think the contrast between that and the city's STR ordinance, where there was clear that there was a, even if the city didn't, you know, take the same interpretation as we did, uh, there was certainly something on the books that could be used to challenge what they did. Ordinarily, that seems to, you know, make governments more cautious. But in this case, it was clear they wanted to do it. Um, but in any case, certainly the whole thing could have been prevented had there been um, a more general statute that just said, you know, not for planning purposes, not for code enforcement purposes, but just as as basically part of fundamental property rights, the c- cities and counties cannot do X. Right. We've seen these in the past that kind of wiggle the, the, wiggle the name vacation rentals or short-term rentals into them, but they still really didn't add any clarity. Um this this bill that's presented would actually add that clarity that so many municipalities across the state are looking for. Um, and basically it says there would be some allowances to what cities and towns could restrict. Uh, but for the most part, it's it's a law or a proposed law to uh, ensure people's private property rights and would essentially allow short term rentals place modest you know requirements to restrictions that local governments can place on them uh i believe they would be at least by right allowed in residential districts so if you have one in a commercial district it might not be uh that's not what they're really addressing here so residentially zoned districts uh pretty much you know could become fair game uh as a lot of people would like to see but um there's two sides to every argument and the people who are in support of uh, unregulated or loosening restrictions on short-term rentals, that really comes down to private property rights. Don't tell me what I can do with my own land. Uh, it's my, my house, I'm gonna use it how I want it, which I understand. On the flip side, um, let's talk about some of these, these arguments that people against these have though. Yeah, so there is there's two kind of broad categories here. One is kind of the immediate neighbors, the NIMBY argument. I don't I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean it literally. Like these are people who do not want a uh, vacation rental or Airbnb in their backyard. Um, so we've seen this in like historic districts in Asheville and obviously here in, in Wilmington. And these are people who were concerned that you know some of when when you are taking a vacation rental, you are on vacation and you are. You know, so some of the complaints were that there was going to be, you know, loud partying in otherwise quiet residential neighborhoods. Now, I will point out that in Wilmington, um, there was an option. The city used a a certain kind of software to track these rentals. And that software came with a uh, relatively inexpensive add-on, a compliance add-on that basically would track, you know, noise violations and parking violations and stuff like that. And uh, the city opted not to purchase that. And the implication here was that the city wasn't really interested in getting real data on whether or not these vacation rentals were turned into, you know, party houses. I will say at some point there was some pretty, I'm just going to say ludicrous suggestions that uh, um, these vacation rentals in, you know, four or $500,000 historic homes were going to turn into like crack dens and or brothels. Or brothels or, you know, a two-for-one <laughs> combination, yeah. cracked-end brothel. 
And uh, not only do we see no evidence of that, it just did not make any logistical sense why a uh, a drug dealer would be shelling out you know hundreds of dollars a night in overhead when there are many many motels on Market Street that serve the same purpose. So that's that's kind of the NIMBY model. Um, I think there's some legitimate complaints there and some very overblown complaints. The other category of complaints was about the impact of VRBOs and Airbnb on the affordable housing market. Yeah, and that is a um, – it's a more sound argument that I think more people picked up on uh, because it does come to the NIMBY issues. Um, that really is – it's one of those things that, well, if it doesn't impact me personally, I'm not really sure if you're going to, you know, get the attention from people who don't live near you and don't have that same concern. And it's also, let's be real, it's very hard for some people and a lot of people to feel bad for someone living in a $2 million historic mansion. Um, People aren't going to have a whole lot of sympathy to say, oh, no, your neighbors are going to be transient. You're going to have, you know, rentals coming in there um it might not be the right attitude but that's absolutely one of the things that i have heard um and again it makes sense that there's just it's hard to commiserate with you know that sort of situation um but when it comes to affordable housing which is kind of the broader topic of today uh vrbo and airbnb short-term rentals whatever company you're doing them through Um, The argument is that as more investors scoop these homes up, you also have, uh, you know, possibly corporate investors buying lots of them, renting them out. That dwindles the affordable housing stock in a community, be it up here in Charlotte, being in Wilmington. Um, There are valid. There's valid concern there, um, and I can see the point. I don't have the actual data to say how big of a problem that truly is. I know that I've seen it in, you know, especially in places like Wrightsville Beach or Carolina Beach, where you have probably every other house or condo, or maybe one out of every three. I mean, the population of that town does not match the number of units there, which says that there are more transient part-time, uh, part-time residents than there are full-time residents, because you look at the voter registration and it's not even close to being the amount of people that stay and, uh, you know, come to Carolina Beach, which is a vacation destination. I get it. Um, So the argument on that side of things, I'm not sure at the way that we're going in general, what impact short-term rentals is going to have in a beach community, a highly desirable community, including Wilmington. Honestly, it might not be a beach, a beach town per se, but it's close to them. It has the river. Uh, It's a, it's a destination. So, you're always going to have people that want to come here. And the flip side of this is, yeah, there are hotels. Uh, people just don't like construction, don't like new projects and developments. Um, if you want to see less hotels being built, people are still going to want to come. So short-term rentals are an option. Now, what impact they actually have on the affordable housing in a vacation destination where it's already going to be expensive I don't know if we can attribute Wilmington's massive uh, housing price inflation over the past five years to short-term rentals. I really just don't don't see that as being the major driver because uh, while I know some people with STRs, uh, by and large, the people 
that I know live there, you know, work there, and that's who's struggling. Uh, I don't really see people spending that much money on investment vacation homes, at least not in a massive quantity. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. And, I, and again, we just do not have the data to extrapolate, you know, what the impact here is. Most of the arguments we've heard have just been anecdotal. One thing I can say is that, you know, some of the uh, proponents of short-term rentals were talking about how um, some of the benefits, in addition to, you know, being able to save historic homes, which, again, I think is kind of a niche, uh, <laughs> a niche benefit that not everyone really is that interested in, but that they were creating yes. this kind of necessary housing market for people who are moving into the area, the kind of person who might move to Wilmington or Asheville or Charlotte for, you know, a, a long-term job but needs a place to stay until before they can get a home is that this was providing a valuable resource. Again, I'm just not sure how that actually fits into the housing market. We've talked to a bunch of experts on this, um, and it's just not clear. But one thing we should point out is that these are short-term rentals. We're not talking about people living in these things for years and years. Um, that's more the traditional rental. And corporate corporate ownership of long-term rentals is a whole other issue, which we'll touch on at the end of the show today. But I want, I want to talk about um, Grandma's house real quick. Yeah, so grandma house, in-law flats, mother-in-law suites, guest house, carriage house, accessory dwelling units. They're all the same name. Call them whatever you'd like. Uh, this is another interesting topic that also has a lot of NIMBY behavior behind it. These accessory dwelling units that are, uh, maybe you have a, a guest house out back, or maybe you have a, uh, a garage, an unfinished garage that you could turn into a full uh, living accommodation with a little kitchenette, uh, bathroom, plumbing, all that sort of stuff. It's becoming, so it's definitely not a new concept. It used to be uh, pretty common in America to see these. Then you had uh, uh, the 1940s into the 1950s world and money wanted to get into that American dream that we've come to know, that white picket fence, two and a half kids and a dog in the yard. Uh, have an acre of land, that was the goal. So that's what developers started building towards, um, which has exacerbated the problem of affordable housing, actually, looking, you know, 70 years later, looking at it, um, because we have grown in population and we are not growing in land mass. So therefore, you're going to need to get more dense. And when you have zoning regulations that sometimes date back to the 1950s, you run into problems when people want to increase housing with these uh, in-law suites is what they call them. The idea is, you know, with an in-law suite, uh, it could either be a short-term rental, long-term rental, or it could be somewhere that, uh, let's say you have an aging parent who you want to be close to, but you don't want to bring them in the house. Um, well, that's not a bad, that's not what I mean. You want to give um, them their privacy. But you don't want to be, yes, there we go. Uh, you don't want to be living in the same house with them, but you want them close. So people would have these uh, in-law suites. Um, and that has become a point of contention because a lot of people still like that idea of the American dream of having that, you know, one acre and not that many people around and uh, that whole concept. But again, we're not growing in landmass, so we need to squeeze more people into the same space as we did before. Something's got to give or it's all going to break. Um, all right. So there's two bills in the General Assembly, one in the House, one in the Senate right now that would, for all intents and purposes, legalize accessory dwelling units now obviously they're not a crime it's not illegal to have them um 
but it's just a good way to, to phrase this, I think. And basically, um, it will put prohibitions on cities and towns and local governments from preventing people from building these ADUs. And the importance that, you know, this bill is trying to get pushed through is that in order to address affordable housing, things have to change. Number one, we've got to do something we haven't been doing because what we're doing clearly isn't working. Um, but number two, it's about housing diversity, because if you look around, go drive through Wilmington and look at what's being built. It's either going to be small, quote, street apartments, middle to, uh, to high income family homes. And there's that missing middle that people talk about, which I believe is actually a uh, registered term um, because I found that out yesterday. Um, but that missing middle is, you know, maybe maybe you want a starter home or something smaller than what's being built. You'd love to get into something from, you know, land, uh, you know, up to landfall one day, but right now you got to start small. Uh, those smaller homes aren't being built. So that's kind of where this could fill in. Yeah. And, you know, in the past, we've heard maybe some slightly overzealous uh, affordable housing advocates suggest that ADUs, you know, will help fix the uh, affordable housing crisis. Um, it's like it's part of a solution. What, what Pratsy, what you're alluding mm -hmm. to is that we need a lot more diverse development. And this is quadruplexes, townhomes. Um, there's there's maybe a dozen different types of housing that are in between these, you know, one acre honking half million dollar houses um, <laughs> and, you know, very dense um you know, luxury apartments. But the problem is that, like, you know, to to build apartments, you got to get rezoned up to multifamily. You're going to get a lot of pushback from neighbors. And simply the traffic infrastructure has to be able to handle it, uh, something we've covered ad nauseum over the last five years. Um, you just, in terms of... Looking at you, Gordon Road. Looking at you, Gordon Road, Military Cutoff Road, all the F roads. Um, <laughs> and let's just go... Yeah. Well, you know what F stands for. Um, not good. Yeah, failure. Failure. So... Yeah, exactly. ADUs are, you know, it's part of a toolkit to address affordable housing. Um, the other thing that we want to point out here is that, you know, uh, at the risk of sand sounding old fashioned, um, when you've got ADUs, you're dealing one on one with a human landlord. You know, someone owns the property mm -hmm. and they're renting out an ADU. And this does build in, you know, some empathy and some cushion when it comes to major market moves in housing costs. And this is the, the last thing I want to talk about. Uh, at least for, for this episode, is that one of the things we've been looking at here in Wilmington is, you know, why is rent so high? And we've talked a lot about filtering and supply and demand, um, sort of the, the the economic drivers that we're used to talking about. We're talking about housing in a capitalist system. But then there's also uh, technology. So <laughs> one of the things we've been looking at is a program called YieldStar or RealPage. Uh, RealPage is the company that owns YieldStar. And this is a software that basically looks at market factors and helps corporate landlords pick rents. And here's the bottom line. Ordinarily, the philosophy of corporate uh, property management is that an empty unit is missing money. It's lost money. And mm -hmm. so when the market is suggesting that rents should be higher, you go to a tenant and you say, look, your rent's got to go up $200. And if the tenant says, absolutely not, but I would pay 50 more or 100 more, you negotiate with the tenant because if they leave, then you've got an empty unit and you're losing X amount of rent. You know, you're losing $1,200 a month. What right. YieldStar allows landlords to do is calculate down to the cent 
how hard you can push a tenant. And if they walk away, you know that someone else will come in behind them. It might be a couple months later, but it lets you look at a longer period of time and say, okay, but over the course of the next 18 months, because my rent will be higher, I will make it up. So I can afford to let this tenant walk away and get someone else in there, even if the unit's going to be empty for a couple months. And this pushes rents harder than basically a human landlord would be able to do. And that's you know a major reason that the uh, that rents went up. Um, there was actually recently a congressional investigation that found where there was a concentration of corporate landlords that used this software. That's where the highest rent spikes were. Like Graystar, is uh, um, I think is the nation's largest property management company. Uh, they've got a number of units here in Wilmington, uh, but they've got units all over the country, and uh, they use it. Um, and we believe Bell Apartments uses it. Um, and so when you see these, uh, you know, concentrations of these corporate landlords, you see uh, pretty aggressive uh, spikes. So um, there is something to be said well, about having human landlords. And it's all, it is very common, Pratt, you've seen this uh, in the comment section for years. When we say landlords, people lump everyone together and sort of demonize yes. everyone from, from Graystar and Bell and Hawthorne all the way down to, you know, uh, a mom and pop who are renting their accessory dwelling unit. And I think a little nuance there would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So first, um, you know, that's the first I'm really hearing about this. It's not shocking when it comes to uh, big data and machine learning, um, but it is terrifyingly one step closer to a dystopian uh, Orwellian world. And that's kind of frightening. Uh, I don't love because it. Because machines love it. are basically saying, how can, how, how can we bleed people dry as close to the penny without pushing them over the edge to where everybody is sleeping on the streets? That's a just incredibly disturbing um, revelation for that. And mind you, I, I full disclosure, my, my parents are landlords. They do rental properties. They are not corporate landlords. Um, and, you know, if they increase rent, it's because their costs go up. It's not to artificially inflate the market and put more strain on people already struggling to make a living, which is why, yeah, there there does need to be some sort of nuance here um, because that, when you talk landlords at, at a corporate level that have, you know, 100,000 units in North Carolina alone um, versus someone with three rental properties, um, it is not even in the same they're not even playing the same game at that point. It's completely different. Um, but that that's truly um, frightening to see how that's that's taking place. And I'd love to see what uh, if that congressional hearing does determine any anything was, uh, you know, wrong. Yeah, we'll, we'll be following this. One of the um, one of the the things that they're looking at is that um, when you've got multiple companies using the same software or very similar software, they're not actually in a cartel, but the end result is the same as if they were in a price-fixing cartel. Because in, right. other, in other parts of the market, say, you know, say the used car market, you know, or the car market in general, um, right. Toyota, Toyota can say, okay, a mid-size sedan is going to cost $35,000. And Kia can say, uh, well, we're going to charge $30,000. And BMW can say, we're going to charge $50,000. And you can kind of go where you want to go in the market. You don't. Toyota can't just tell you how much a midsize sedan costs. Right. Now prices overall 
rise, but there is a range, and you you can walk away as a consumer. Um, with the important mm-hmm. caveat that you can choose not to have a car sometimes. You can it's it's more difficult to choose not to have a roof over your head. But basically, what this means is that tenants, um, you know, if you live at a Hawthorne, and these this is strictly hypotheticals. I'm not you know saying this has happened, but if you live at a Hawthorne property and they come to you with a rent increase. Um, it is much more difficult to say, well, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to go live at a Bell property or a Tribute property or a Graystar property because they're all using the same software and, and pursuing the same aggressive increases. And there just aren't enough mom and pop landlords. But that's where people try to go. You, you're watching people leave the corporate landlord market and try to find someone who's renting an accessory dwelling unit or a front room over a garage or something like that. So that's the other part of it is that there is a really strong strain of uh, antitrust type concerns here. And I, I will point out that the guy who came up with this software, the Yieldstar software, uh, was also part of the late 80s, early 90s uh, airline price fixing debacle, which cost consumers. Oh, that, that tracks. It's, uh, it's the same guy. <laughs> um, and so after the Department of Justice forced those eight airlines, including Alaska Airlines, which he worked for back in the 80s, to... Um, to stop doing that because it cost customers about a billion dollars, B billion with a B. Um, this guy went to uh, Eastern Europe and hung out there for a while, and when he came back, he set his sights on uh, corporate landlord management. So, um, everything, well, everything old is new again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I guess so. Uh, kind of terrifying. Sounds like you might know Roger Stone or someone in charge of the McMillions uh, monopoly scandal, something like that. But. Uh, not not a great situation for affordable housing overall and it is uh you know it it is at least good to see that the north carolina legislature uh are at least making efforts i won't agree with everything they do i won't disagree with everything they do but making the efforts is important but getting things done now that the gop does have that super majority um in both chambers it will be really interesting to see uh for whatever for whatever it is, what sort of momentum that, you know, the state can make, because this is not a left or right issue. This is uh, everybody needs affordable housing. Everybody needs, uh, you know, to have a roof over their head. It's a basic human right is, you know, shelter. Um, But not when you have a capitalistic land system, which again, not opposed, not against, on here um it just is what it is so it will be really interesting to me to see if they actually pass any of these things if we start seeing any more accessory dwelling units short-term rentals uh and kind of see how the free market evens itself out if these changes are implemented yeah and the last thing i'll say here is to your point um you know regardless of which party you sit in if you're representing southeastern north carolina our number one industry is tourism and the service industry. And if the people who serve you your food and, you know, uh, <laughs> run the hotels and the restaurants and, you know, the boat tours, if they can't afford to live here and that part of the economy collapses, we don't have as strong of, say, an R&D infrastructure or, you know, a manufacturing infrastructure. There's been a lot of efforts to help build that up. But really what people do when they come to Wilmington and and uh, coastal Brunswick County and coastal Pender County is they go to the beach. They're on vacation. And so if the tourism yep. industry collapses because people just can't afford to be here to work in that industry, we're in a real 
serious problem situation. And so there's a vested interest strictly from an economic point of view, even if you can't muster up the compassion to care about people who can't afford their rent. If all you care about is economic development and the economy of the region, you still need to care about affordable housing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the best place to uh, to kind of leave it and to put it there. Was there anything else you wanted to hit on? Oh, no, I'm sure there will be plenty to deal with uh, the next time <laughs> we talk. But for now, uh, thanks for listening. All right. We will see you next time.